Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. Let me start by wishing you all the best during the holiday season and beyond. I hope 2020 ends on a better note than it's been known for. Now, with the year-end on my mind, let me also thank everyone who's listened and to everyone who's supported the show during the year. I'm looking forward to ramping everything up in 2021. There's going to be more episodes, more YouTube live call-in shows, more everything. And it's the support of the listeners, and especially so the subscribers of the premium feed, that make this all possible. So, again, let me thank you. Now, to get started into the episode, what we're about to get into is probably the most unlikely Christmas special you're ever going to find. But given how odd 2020 has been, a Christmas special with the notorious serial killer Alan Legere is probably on brand. Here's the story of how this came to be. Now, listeners of the show will hopefully recall the episode I released in the summer of 2019 called Alan Legere, The Monster of the Miramichi. In that episode, I was joined by the author Rick McLean, who described in graphic detail the life and the crimes of Alan Legere, and the story of how Rick would go on to write the best-selling book about the case, Terror. Now, during the production of that episode, I had made contact with Mr. Legere, as for a period of time, I was interested in interviewing him and getting his side of his story. Not that I think his side of the story would be any different than the facts that came out in his trial or the ones recounted in Rick McLean's book, but instead, because Alan Legere has long stated everyone else is getting his story wrong. I guess I'm just curious what he feels everyone else is missing. So with that on my mind, I sent Mr. Legere a short, typed letter that I signed, introducing myself, introducing my show, and explaining my curiosity about his story. I didn't hear anything back, my episode was released, and I just assumed that my letter was squished into a ball and thrown into a trash bin somewhere within a maximum security prison. After months had passed, I moved the show on to other topics, and I had completely forgot about the short, unanswered letter I sent Alan Legere. So we'll cut ahead a few months, snow is on the ground, A chill is in the air, and Christmas is all around. I put on my boots and my toque, I zipped up my coat, and I headed out the door to check my mailbox. As I open it up, I find it stuffed. There are flyers, a package containing a Christmas gift I ordered from my mom, and of course, there's Christmas cards sent from family and friends who still hold on to the traditional way of staying connected. My grandmother had scribbled her name on one. My friend Craig out west sent me his regards and a photo of his beautiful baby girl. Then I get to a beat-up envelope that looked a little thicker and felt heavier than the rest. The name on the front of the envelope wasn't that legible, 
so I opened it up, still not knowing who exactly had sent it. Inside, I found a very typical Christmas card. On the front was a watercolored painting of a little church in front of a stand of trees. Above the church, in the blue sky dotted with snowflakes, it simply said, Christmas Blessings. Overall, it's a boring, forgettable card. But things are about to get much more interesting. As I open up the card, a five-page letter that was clasped within it falls to my feet, and I'm left facing a long, rambling message that completely fills the interior of the card. I notice the scribbled message ends with the only line that's easily readable. It says, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and your family. If you have children, I hope they're okay. My blessings, Alan Legere. It's at this point I realize I'm holding a Christmas card sent to me from one of the world's most horrible serial killers, the monster of the mirror machine. It's unsettling to say the least. And now I've been sitting on this letter for some time, not sure really what to do with it until now. I decided I'm going to share it and all the strange things he says within it to the listeners of Nighttime. So let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, using his own words taken from a Christmas card he sent me, we're going to hear from the monster of the Miramichi, Alan Legere. Before I begin reading this card, I just want to say a few things about it. I'm going to do my best to read it clearly and accurately. But when I say Alan Legere's handwriting is bad, I mean it. Some parts of the letter were completely indecipherable and had to be skipped. Other parts were extra rambling, and for the sake of making this listenable, I skipped them. Also, some names had to be changed to protect the privacy of those involved in his life. And in other cases, I had to change a few words just to make things make sense. If you want to see some of the actual letter, I'll have excerpts of it on my website, nighttimepodcast.com, and I'll also go through it in detail on the Nighttime YouTube channel in the near future. So I'll begin reading the letters now. And I say letters as there are actually two letters. One was scribbled inside the card, but it seemed like he was running out of space and instead added a second, much longer letter. I'll start by reading what Alan Legere wrote on the interior of the card. Sir, this is in response to your letter that was undated. Plus, the stamps were removed for security reasons, and this time, when they took off the stamps, they tore off the date your letter was mailed. And I hate sloppiness. I received your letter on November 26th at roughly 8.40 p.m. Any other joint I've been in delivers mail in the morning. Of course, I've never heard of you, and forgive me saying that I detest typed letters. I detest not dated letters, and I hate a scribbled signature. It's as if you're trying to hide your identity, and your address means nothing to me unless it's been authenticated. Imagine me writing to you, a total stranger, inquiring about why your wife left you or how you went from job to job with an unstable work history. You'd say, who the fuck does this guy think he is? I've received letters from dozens of people since 1989 after my arrest and trial. Here's some of my history. 
I moved to Quebec on December 13, 1991, and stayed there till June 20, 2015. 23 years and one month, despite the fact that Quebec's assessment in 1992 stated they didn't even want me. I didn't fit the criteria. While there, I did the only three programs they had, and in 93 to 94, I learned that they provided the book on grade 12 law, which is the same as what you would use in the first year of studying law. Now I have two diplomas, civil law and criminal law, both via Quebec. One of my teachers, the now-retired Mr. Avby, with whom I studied French and studied law, and I took many exams from, said I should be a judge. I was there over 23 years, remanded to Max because of a table of 19 items by wardens, psychologists, and psychiatrists, and a criminal behaviorist that is now retired. I told them to kiss my ass, and they literally dragged me up here. My life, and the world order, it's too long to explain in a card, so I'll enclose a separate letter for you. Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year to you and your family. If you have any children, I hope they're okay. Signed, Alan Lashier. What you just heard was what was sprawled on the interior of the card, but of course he ends by making reference to the separate five-page letter. So I'll begin reading that now, to the best of my ability. Dear Jordan, as mentioned in my Christmas card, you didn't clearly and acceptably identify yourself. And your name, frankly, doesn't sound legitimate. And if so, which is just my hunch, some people will write for a stupid signature when if they were honest, I would have given their kids a hand-drawn Winnie the Pooh cartoon. So let me tell you my story. I was in the Atlantic Institute in Renoir, New Brunswick, sent here from Dorchester. My trial was January 6th, to 22nd in 1987. You see, the co-author of Terror and the guest on your episode about me, Rick McLean, was one of the people around Miramichi who 100% didn't know me personally and relied on gossip for his shit book. You may know this, but it was ridiculed by Brian Daniels of the Globe and Mail as insufficient and that the book needed more in-depth facts. Around Miramichi, I hung out with mostly a shady crowd, and some were very devious. The police knew most, if not all of us. You'll see in just that book, a woman said she could tell I was evil even as a child. There were so many ignoramuses in Chatham Head and surrounding towns, it was like Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. I made my first communion and confirmation at St. Patrick's Church around 1954 when I was just six years old. Fellow students were so inaccurate about memorizing the prayers, the priests asked me to write them all down. And as you may notice, I remember every year and every event of my life since age two. Even today, staff and inmates will shake their heads as I rhyme off accurate statements about any year or detail they ask. Let me prove it to you by sharing some of my history. I was located with friends in Ontario between 1967 to 1971, until I made a big mistake and returned home to New Brunswick as a machinist class two. I graduated from Cambrian College of the Applied Arts and Technology and worked for Longyear Diamond Drilling Incorporated. Upon arrival in New Brunswick, I got a job as a machinist at the Chatham Foundry, 
I worked with the late Ernest Herbert of Rogersville, New Brunswick, and his daughter often wrote to me while I was at the Quebec Special Handling Unit. While working at the foundry, we made and repaired snowplow blades, shafts, and a whole lot more. The late wealthy Chatham businessman, Adelaide Hashi, bought the foundry for his son Philip, who was a welder at the St. John, New Brunswick dry docks. I later bought his son Philip's 1969 Pontiac GTO and painted it like the stars and striped flag. See, cars were my main interest. I bought and sold cars since about 1964 while going to junior high. I worked labor stevedoring on ships for, that from all over the world came into port, and I made good money. I bought a 1957 Pontiac four-door six-cycle from the now-deceased Raymond Dagg, who didn't tell me money was owed on it. So one day when I was coming home after chaos on the school bus, I saw the car being towed by a wrecker. I wouldn't be fooled like that ever again. I've owned at least 80 cars and trucks, but many of them were never put in my name to avoid taxes, and I learned that insurance was covering me if I didn't have them too long before transferring the title. Also, I had at least 14 motorcycles, mostly Yamahas and Kawasaki's. I've only ever owned two new bikes. One was a 68 180cc Yamaha. Eventually, I traded it for a 350cc Yamaha. I also know two Ontario motorcycle clubs. One, called the Players, were from Sudbury, and the other was from North Bay, and they were both broken up by the Barbarians. Now, mind you, I wasn't a member of either, but I won respect from them both. My landlord at the Lakeside Cottage, whose son played for the NHL in the 60s, would raise his eyebrows as half-dozen bikes drove to my cottage for a few beer. My buddy Piglet, on his 1969 Harley Sportster, came often with a case of 12 beer on the back of his seat. Some wore suits in the day and worked as salespeople, and others were machinists who worked alongside me at the foundry. Many of them were USA draft dodgers, I suppose. In 1969, I traded a Mustang for a 1969 Ford Torino Cobra Jet 428 four-speed. I raced it each weekend, and it beat cars on the quarter mile, some by one or two seconds. I eventually sold or traded it to David and Patty Lewicki of Chatham, New Brunswick, around spring of 72, after I was working at the pulp and paper mill in Miramichi. David Lewicki gave me his 1967 Chev Impala. It was a 327 V8. It had no rust and a four-speed, although he didn't have it synchronized. I later bought more Mustangs, one from Ray Carew of New Folk, New Brunswick. Then there was another 66 Mustang I had to travel to Quispamsis to get. I also bought a 69 BSA 650cc Lightning. I drove that to work at the paper mill that I foolishly quit at. I remember David Lewicki was so thrilled about how fast that 69 BSA drove. It got to 145 miles per hour easily. In fact, it was so fast, RCMP would sometimes chase me, and even if they were at top speed, it was like they were stopped. I broke it in hard, and all the other car owners couldn't understand why my 69 could beat their similarly powered cars on a quarter mile. It was fast, and it's all about how you break it in. Steady tune-ups, etc., and of course, how you rev it and how you shift gears. Anyway, you see my point. I remember everything, the date and time. 
So let me now tell you about Rick McLean, the author of that shit book about me. I hung out with some of his Chatham Head New Brunswick uncles at beer parties and dances. One of them did crimes with me in the fall of 71 and a few other times beyond that. Their father, Rick's grandfather, Frank, whose home was next to the Chatham Head Church, was as poor as we were. But Frank was a complete alcoholic. I never saw him have a job, and I lived near him from 48 until I left at 67. One day, from diabetes and alcoholism, Frank lost his foot, but he kept boozing along the old ferry road in Chatham Head. On one night, while he was on crutches, Frank was so drunk I had to pull him out of the ditch as he clutched a bottle of cheap wine. So when Rick McLean wrote that load of bullshit mixed with a few court facts, I thought, listen, you little prick, why don't you expose your grandfather's side of your family tree? He's such a wimp. He misunderstands me. It was all bullshit that he wrote. He even badmouthed my late mother Louise. And none of my family had criminal records. It was only me. My family never bothered anyone nor took a red cent. And I, of course, I let my family and others I care about down, as well as the public. But it's not how I am. In 77 to 78, I managed the Zodiac nightclub in Chatham. And while there, I never once drank hard liquor, except for the odd woman's drink of vodka and orange. I just don't have the stomach for it. I like a six-pack of Heineken beer chilled, and I hate all wines and champagne. Back when I was on the run and living in the woods from May till November, I saw in newspapers that the RCMP were hunting for me with high-powered rifles. I thought, if I'm going to get killed by one of their bullets, I'm going to drink so I don't feel it. And during that time, I drank every type of liquor I could handle. While on the run, I became an alcoholic in just a few months, and that's what made me careless. My two ex-wives, nor my kids, never saw me bring up bottle of beer or liquor in our many homes. In the fridge, it'd just be full of Pepsi. Imagine that. I never smoked pot or drank beer in my home or my mom's home. Not ever. I have no desire to sit around and watch TV drinking beer. And if I eat out, I want to get Coke Zero. So yeah, Rick McLean's books haven't got the real story at all, and he never will. I recall in late 1971, after my arrival in Miramichi with my 1969 Ford Torina Cobra Jet 428CI, I went to Rick McLean's dad's shop. He had to move out of Chatham Head to survive, and he was the only way Rick knew gossip on me. Not facts. It was his uncle who was always eager to toss my name and hide his own dirty deeds. Anyway, when I went to Rick's dad's garage, Rick was there. He was probably only 13 or 14. He was near my car and I let him sit in it as his dad changed the oil. The only other time Rick got near me was when I placed car ads at the Miramichi Leader newspaper. He'd say thank you and that'd be it. Yet during my time on the run from prison, I was at one of my 12-week hideouts and I was listening to a CBC radio show and here is Rick McLean comparing me to the 1889 Donald Morrison, outlaw of the Magnetic. And that's the area, Magnetic, Quebec, where the train tanker crashed some years back and why they're all so against pipelines. And I think it's all overreaching. We need pipes. So from that point, I knew that this quote-unquote writer, Rick McLean, was going for a book deal as he needed a way to get out of his dead-end editor job with the Miramichi leader. 
His book of lies on me went on to sell over 50,000 copies and got him a job teaching journalism at a PEI college. Now, I have no problem with journalists, as long as they're truly professional and examine all sides of the truth. And he didn't do that. To me, he doesn't need to fear me. I just think he's an extremist and his drunken, no-good grandfather mistreated his wife. I clearly remember her keeping house for all their kids while that drunken son of a bitch paraded around Chatham Head drunk. Anyone my age around there who knows would tell you he was a drunk. So in closing, let me say that I pay dearly for my crimes. Correctional Services Canada has a policy to rehabilitate and reintegrate me back into society, and they need to do it. Not use a yardstick of some 30-year-old crimes, but consider my present-day mentality and rehabilitate. Not just say, we can't trust him. It's all wrong. I've been side-by-side daily with both male and female staff, period. So, bye for now. Even if I'm not sure you are who you say you are. But if you are, then for fuck's sake, write your name and your address and the date legibly. Oh, one last thing I forgot to mention. I know many blacks around Halifax as well as some former members of the Hells Angels. They were all really nice guys. And also, in 1972, I fought amateur boxing in New Waterford against the then-champ Mickey Clark, but I lost. His brother Chris Clark also became a champ, but like so many others, his life torpedoed with drugs. My sincere Christmas blessings, Alan Legere. So that's what a Christmas card from Alan Legere sounds like. I don't even know what to say other than I hope it gives a glimpse into the mind of the man who terrorized New Brunswick during some of its darkest days. And with that, I'll begin to wrap up this episode of Nighttime. But first, I'm going to end with a few thanks. A huge thanks to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And then... A massive thank you to everyone listening to Nighttime. Without your interest and your support, Nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you enjoy what I'm doing here on Nighttime, please help keep the show alive by subscribing to the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can help fund the creation of future episodes. And not only will your support help make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you're going to find here on the free feed as I add exclusive content to the premium feed weekly. So please help keep the show alive by subscribing to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest supporters of the show, Gloria, Jenna, Tom, Josh, and Joelle. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing the episodes on social media and telling your friends who you think would be interested in what we're doing here. If you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, you can send me a voice memo at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and I'm live on YouTube every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday at 9 Eastern. 
And one last thing, if you want to provide your thoughts on this episode or your memories of the time that Alan Legere stalked New Brunswick, please share those comments via a voice memo through nighttimepodcast.com, and I'll do my best to include them in the next Nightcap post-show episode. So with all that said, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let's hope that a lot changes in this world during 2021. Except Alan Legere's incarceration. I hope he stays there. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.